Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so again today, um, we're, we've got a, a, a smattering of short texts that we're going to read. They're printed there on page 10 in your bulletin in preparation for the sermon. First, a, a series of verses from Proverbs. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. There's one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and health to the body. Whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. Do you see a man who's hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Speaking of Lady Wisdom, the virtuous wife, the embodiment of Lady Wisdom in Proverbs 31, she opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. And from the Apostle Paul in Ephesians, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as, as good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. This is the word of the Lord. We ask you now, our God, to move in us in a very mighty way as we hear this word in Jesus' good name. Amen. So we're back today. We're back today in our series on mere humanity. And um, as I've said from the beginning, one of my aims in this series about humanity is I'm really trying to kind of open up our understanding of what it means that Jesus saves. You know, we use language like that: Jesus saves, He's my Savior, and that sort of thing. But I really am trying to kind of push our thinking about that away from the very simplistic notion. It's not most of us would not put it quite this baldly, but the idea that Jesus is a provider of hell insurance. You know, that He He gives you a way to get to heaven. That's kind of what it means that he saves you. I want to push us away from that simplistic idea to, to, the, to the understanding that Jesus, when, he, when we say Jesus saves, what we mean is Jesus comprehensively restores our humanity. Comprehensively restores our humanity. Everything God made to be human, Jesus restores that. And so we've been walking through these 12 pieces uh, of humanity. Kind of, I've called them pieces from the game board of human life. And today we've come to the eighth, and this is a piece beloved, that you and I play every single day hundreds of times. Some of these other pieces you might say, ah, you know, I don't do a lot with that. This one, I guarantee, unless you are mute, you every day are playing this piece. And if you really think about it, some of the more important effects of your entire life, for good or ill, are going to be in these plays with this piece. Some of the biggest things are going to happen coming out of your life are going to be because you played this piece. And yet, I think when you look at it, our skills with this little piece of our humanity, they are, our skills are often so remarkably untrained, and maybe nowhere in our lives are the viciousness of our hearts and also the redemptive power of Jesus more on display than in the way that we use our tongue, our tongue. Now, I've already preached within the last 12 months about words, the tongue, 
And I, you know, when, whenever you start a sermon like on the tongue, it's tempting to just say a bunch of really obvious stuff. Like, you know, God speaks, he made you to speak, so speak nice, you know, amen. A refreshingly brief sermon. <laughs> but I actually want to think today a little more deeply about what actually happens when we speak and why it matters quite a lot. And so I want to begin today with some thinking together about the power of words, the power of words. And to illustrate this and kind of get into it, imagine that I'm standing after worship today on the front porch of the church here, and I see one of our little people running toward the road. And it's pretty clear that if something isn't done, this child is going to run into all that traffic out there on Jackson Avenue. What do you think I'm going to say? What, there's one little word I'm going to utter. What's it gonna be? Stop, as loud as I can, stop. Now, I just want you to think about what happened there. Because one way of thinking about what just happened is that a word happened. A word was uttered, right? Ben spoke. And you could have someone who says, you know, there was a moment on the front porch where the pastor said a word. It's spelled S-T-O-P. It's an English word, stop. The meaning of it is cessation of motion, and it's in the imperative mood, which means he was... That's not what actually happened there. I mean, it's true, a word was spoken, But if you really think about what happened, a warning happened. It's not just that Ben spoke. Ben acted towards someone in that word. It was an action, right? So we can say a word was uttered. That's true. But what actually happened there was a warning. Ben acted towards somebody with that word. And then there's a third piece. Not just a word happened, but a warning happened. And also then there's the effect you know, the warning either worked or it didn't. But that word had an effect, even if it wasn't the effect I exactly intended. And that's kind of what happens in speech. Now, with that little illustration in mind, the word, the warning, which is the big thing, and then whatever effect it has, I want to just offer some observations about the power of words. Number one, words assume a relationship. This is true from the most intimate kinds of speech. You might think about a mother with a child in arms, the kind of intimate ooing and cooing and chatting that moms do and that extremely intimate, you know, thing where she's holding a baby, all the way to the other end of human speech where you've got someone who writes this really dry, boring academic paper and doesn't know if anybody actually will ever read this, but writes the paper nevertheless in the hopes that maybe someday someone will read it and maybe get something out of it. All words assume some kind of relationship. Even when you're talking to yourself, this is kind of weirdly true, because you are sort of both speaker and spoken to. There's always a relationship. Anytime words are being used, there's an assumption there's a relationship here. A second observation about the power of words. I want to spend a moment or two here. Words, they assume a relationship, but words set relational terms. They set relational terms. Now, this is so crucial to understand brothers and sisters, that I'm tempted to tell you that if you don't understand what I'm saying here, you just should not talk. (laughs) If you don't know what, if you don't understand what I'm about to say here, you just shouldn't talk. Because words set relational terms. Every single time you speak, you are identifying or you are establishing relational realities. Let me say that again. Every time you open your mouth and speak, you are identifying or you are establishing relational realities. Now, to see how that works, it might be useful for us to think about a kind of spectrum of our words. On one end, you have words that 
set relational terms fairly indirectly. Well, think about this over here to, to my right, your left. Well, think about this end of the spectrum as kind of side-by-side talking, where I'm side-by-side with you and I am using words, but I'm setting the terms of relationship here fairly indirectly because we're kind of side-by-side. And at the other end of the spectrum is where I'm using words, but I'm setting relational terms very directly because this is not side-by-side speech, this is face-to-face speech. So you kind of have the indirect setting terms side-by-side, the very direct setting relational terms face-to-face, and there's kind of a spectrum. I just want to walk through that spectrum a little bit and think about how words set relational terms. So, for example, at the far end, here to your left, my right, indirectly we set relational terms. And this is the kind of words, this is the category of words in which, now a lot of words fit in this category, where we just state something. We just state something about some object in the world, maybe some event in the world. If I say to you, man, you know, the sunset last night was amazing. That is a statement we're side by side, just talking about stuff out in the world. The sunset was amazing. Or I could say, I'm going to the store for orange juice as a way of talking about why I'm grabbing my keys. Now, think about those two statements. The sunset was amazing. I'm going to the store for orange juice. I'm just stating something about an object or an event. I don't know if we often think about what's actually happening there, but those words I am using are referring to a bunch of shared reality. Think about how this is true. By saying the sunset last night was amazing, or I'm going to the store for orange juice, I am actually referring to a bunch of shared reality. Because you and I share a world in which the word sunsets actually communicates. Because there are sunsets. If there was no such thing as a sunset, then for me to say the sunset last night was amazing would be utterly meaningless. It would, it would, not, it would not be about shared reality. If I said the glorf last night was amazing, you'd have no idea what I'm talking about. That's a meaningless statement because the glorfs don't exist so far as I know. And so that's not shared reality. But I can say the sunset was amazing and because there are actual sunsets in the world, that's shared reality. This speech is able to identify shared reality. And actually, it would be possible for there to be a reality, but only one of us actually understands what it is. Like if you've never had orange juice, you have no idea what orange juice is, and I say to you, I'm going to the store for orange juice, that's meaningless to you because orange juice is not actually a reality that we at least in experience, share. And what's interesting about statements, about objects or events in the world, as we're kind of side by side looking out at shared reality, is that the function of statements then is to make that shared reality more shared. Are you with me? You and I are able, you know, we both understand what a sunset is, but because I'm telling you about a sunset that I saw, I'm taking that experience of that sunset that I had, and I'm actually bringing you into that experience somewhat by my description so that we can then have a sort of mutual experience of that object out in the world, that sunset. I'm making it more of a shared reality. If I say to Sarah, I'm running to the store for orange juice when I grab my keys, I am creating a kind of shared understanding. I'm opening up a shared understanding of what is happening as I grab my keys, where we both now know what's actually going on here. And that, that, that making that event more shareable to, to Sarah and me, it's, I'm doing that even if I'm lying. Even if I'm really grabbing my keys to go to the golf course, I don't want her to know, which I wouldn't do because I can't golf, but let's just suppose. I am still, even if I'm lying, I'm creating a shared understanding. I'm making this event more of a shared reality, even if I'm actually doing that deceptively. 
And you can imagine how, at much more sophisticated levels, I mean, these are sort of everyday kinds of things we say, but at much more sophisticated levels, think about scientific descriptions of the world, or in the realm of events, historical or journalistic stories, what are they doing? You know, the, the, the scientist or the historian or the journalist at the really high level of speech, they are opening up our sharing of the world. They're opening up this world in which we are already related and they're increasing our sharing of it because there's more understanding now, there's more knowledge now, there's more thinking about this now. So there's an opening up of shared reality. It's indirectly setting relational terms by opening up sharing of the reality we already share to some degree because it exists. Now it's very, maybe a good idea here to just pause and note a difference here between God's words and ours. Because our statements, still at this indirect end, our statements obviously don't create objects and don't create events. I can't speak a world event into existence. I don't speak a thing into existence. They, our statements simply refer to objects and events that already exist, but God's words do speak things into existence. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And you and I can talk about light, and that conversation has mutual meaning. We can have a common understanding of light and how it works and what it is and what its purpose is and all of that because it exists. But our speech, our talking about light doesn't make light. We refer to that which God has already spoken into existence. So these are the indirect setting of relational terms. It's very powerful. It opens up the world a lot. But let's now move to kind of the middle of the spectrum, not clear to the other end to the direct setting of relational terms, but kind of in the middle, there's another category I want to think about. So we've got statements about objects and events, but here in the middle, to a greater or lesser extent, my words reveal me. They reveal not objects and events out there, but they reveal my inner world. Even the most boringly factual accounts that someone gives of something. You ever had a child tell you a story about something that happened to them the other day? And you're like seven or eight minutes into this story and you're just exhausted because you think you're never going to get to the end of the details and find out what the point of the story is. What is interesting, even in a totally boringly factual account like that of some event in the world, that child is showing you what he or she sees, what he or she thinks. And words can do this. Words can reveal, they can disclose what I believe. They can disclose what I feel. Obscenities basically do this. Obscenities don't have any real content. They just reveal how someone's feeling. Oh, blanket. You know know how this person feels. It's just a self-disclosure of some feeling, not usually a very righteous one. Words can disclose what I want. Now, since I'm part of this world that you and I share, I'm one of the objects in the world you and I share, in doing that, I'm kind of like with descriptions of other events and, and, and other objects, I am kind of opening up our shared world. I'm making our world more shareable because I'm one of the objects in it, and now Ben is more shareable because you know more about Ben, kind of like you might know more about you know, the sunset or whatever. So at one level, this is still very indirect. It can be very side-by-side. I'm just kind of bringing forth Ben making that reality more shareable. It's interesting, a a wonderful example of this is fiction. You know, J.K. Rowling, she brought into the world Harry Potter. She brought a whole mental world 
of characters and objects and events out into the realm of active sharing. And now there is a Harry Potter thing in the world. <laughs> and, you know, J.K. Rowling is more shareable now, and we will never get away from what she has shared. Now, it's interesting, having brought forth those mental realities, they remain mental realities. You're never going to meet an actual Harry Potter. It's still only J.K. Rowling's mental reality. In that way, a, a similar example would be the statement, I identify as. The, identifying as something doesn't make that reality a reality. It merely discloses your feeling about the reality that is you. It opens up something of your mental reality, but it brings it out into the world, and it now makes that part of the shared world. And in that way, it makes reality more shareable. I think this is where we could think about Jesus being the Word. Jesus is the, the Word, the utterance of God. Because what, among other things, what does Jesus do? He reveals to us God's mind, God's heart, God's character, God's glory. And this is revealing speech. Jesus is a revealer of God as his word. But you can already sense, as I'm talking about, you know, making known my thoughts, my ideas, my feelings, my wants, my beliefs to somebody, you can already sense that this is not just side-by-side, -side, indirectly setting relational terms by opening up shared reality. There's something more toward the other end of the spectrum. This is also something that happens very much face-to-face. -face. Because at the far end of the spectrum, there's this whole category of speech not just self-revealing stuff, but this whole category of speech. And these words directly address somebody. We're not side-by-side -side talking about sunsets. We're not side-by-side -side talking about Ben. We are face-to-face, we -face, and I am directly addressing you. And this is, these words set relational terms at another level. And you know this from your experience. There are so many of our words that call for a response where even if I say this and it's just ignored, that's a response. That's a relational thing we're going to have to deal with because I am just by speaking this kind of word, I am setting the relational terms here and then you are in a position of needing to respond. Think about words like invitation. Directing somebody in some way. I said do this. I said don't do that. That's directly addressing. Promises. You know, wedding vows. Warning, stop, threatenings. If I have to tell you this again, I'm gonna, what am I doing? There's direct address. These words are setting relational terms very directly. And there's even a category of words here that are, this is amazing to think about. Some words are even authoritative pronouncements such that they create a new situation. If your boss says the words, you're fired. The world has just changed. That speech made something made a reality that was not a reality before. You were formerly employed, now you are unemployed. If the judge says, I hereby sentence you to six months hard labor, that speech pronounces reality and actually creates the reality it pronounces. When I said to Sal and Kalen, I pronounce you husband and wife, there was different reality on the other side of that statement. These are very powerful action words that set relational terms like by literally changing the social situation. I think that cursing people is kind of trying to do this. Cursing people is trying to pronounce what they're worth. You piece of whatever. What's interesting about cursing is that it has no actual authority. I mean, nobody can define your worth but God. But those curses are very damaging to the extent that the hearer feels that the speaker's estimation has some kind of 
importance to it, has, you know, that that estimation of me matters. And when, you know, my best friend curses me or my, my wife or my child curses me, there's a sense of their estimation matters. And so there's a, a, a deep sense of like an authoritative pronouncement on my, on my worth and value. So words are powerful. They, they assume a relationship. They set relational terms, both indirectly and directly. And the third and last thing I want to say about the power of words is just that the effects then of words, whether statements or self-disclosures or direct address, the effects of words are just obviously very, very complicated. Because with God, there's never a breakdown between God and his words or between God's words and the effects that he intends. We just read this in Psalm 33. He spoke and it was done. There's not like a breakdown between God, his words, and his, the effects of his words. But with us, you know, this, this, there's so many breakdowns. There are all the time breakdowns between me and my words. I can't tell you how many times I say words that don't say what I mean to say. It's frustrating how often I will say something and realize I just said what I, that word did not, those words did not say what I actually meant to try to say. And it's weird because I'm both the speaker and the problem. There's a breakdown between me and my words. I mean, I'm the only one saying this, so how could it not be what I mean? And yet it's not what I mean. It doesn't communicate what I mean to say. And there's all kinds of breakdowns between my words and their intended effects. Sometimes I say something intending one thing, and the words are ignored. They're misunderstood. They're twisted by somebody even maliciously. They end up being words that are just so ill-suited to this occasion. Or they're just damaging in all kinds of ways I could not have envisioned. And when you add to this, going back to the Proverbs here, when you add to this all this complexity of effects, that the more your emotions are riled, the more likely there will be a breakdown between you and your words or between your words and the intended effects. That's why these Proverbs basically just say over and over and over and over again, you need to cool down before you speak. Because if you speak when your emotions are riled, the breakdowns are all over the place between you and what you mean, between what you mean and what actually happens. And beloved, the crazy thing is we haven't even mentioned sin. I'm just describing the mechanics of speech. We haven't even mentioned sin. So my words set relational terms. But if the Bible says my heart is wicked and deceitful above all things, in fact, who can know your own heart? How likely is it that I might try to set relational terms, whether side by side, looking out at the world, or face to face, directly addressing my neighbor, how likely is it that I might use my words to try to set relational terms in ways that are deceptive, in ways that are self-serving, in ways that are violent, in ways that are morally degrading, or just plain foolish and stupid? Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. And that brings us to the ethics of words. So the power of words. They assume a relationship, they set relational terms, the effects are very complicated, and you still got to fold in the whole idea that our hearts use this power in ways that we should really be keeping an eye on. Can I ask you guys something? Does God care about what happens in relationships? It's okay to, you know, give the Sunday school answer. Does God care about what happens in relationships? I mean, you think? You think? He only says love God and love your neighbor are the great commandments. Like, relationships are it. They are like, they're it. <laughs> love God, love your neighbor. Yes, God cares about what happens in our relationships. So do you think that God cares how you and I set relational terms? 
or try to set relational terms, which is what our words do. So do you think that God cares about our words? God cares immensely about our words. And I just sat and thought about this this week, and I gotta tell you, this is an area of my life, this is one of the pieces on my game board that I, I, I need, I like seriously need work, and I suspect some of you do too. I just really thought about the power of words and what this means ethically, what it means morally and spiritually. If it is the, in fact the case that our words have the power to set relational terms, to either open up or distort shared reality, I can actually mislead people about reality with my words or I can open it up and make it more shareable. I can reveal thoughts and feelings and beliefs and wants that are corrupting of people, and I can reveal thoughts and feelings and wants and, that are wholesome and, that, and that, are, that build people up. I can directly address my neighbor for good or for evil. I can curse or I can bless. If that is the power that our words have to set relational terms, And to make it even more complicated, the effects of our words may be way beyond anything that we intended. Do you think we ought to be careful with that power? You think that ought to make you have some hesitancy about speech? I mean, let's suppose that when worship ends today and everyone kind of gathers in the middle aisle, I just start running down the aisle like this, top speed. And I'm just knocking people out of the way. You would say to me, Ben, you might say some very strong things to me. You say, Ben, you're going to hurt somebody. You're a tall, you know, guy with long arms. You're, you're, there's a little power charging down the aisle here. That power, you've got to get that under control. You're going to, you know. You, I often watch people speaking, and that's what I see. I listen to myself speaking, and that's what I see. All kinds of power. Relational terms being set, and you just wonder, have you, you know how to use that thing? The Bible tells us that in our father, Adam, we lost dominion over our tongue. The tongue nobody can tame. We've tamed the rest of creation, James says. We have not tamed the tongue. But what I'm here to say today is that in Jesus, that dominion over the tongue has been restored. You are able in Christ to rule your words. Because as the word of our father... So it begins with his word, not ours. As the word of God our Father, of his love for us in Christ, the the, the debt being paid by Christ, so we're not under God's judgment now. Our sin has been forgiven. And we've been given Christ's righteousness. We've been made children of God. And we are in his kingdom. And we're going to inherit this kingdom. We need to learn how to rule this kingdom. And he will teach us. As that reality, what God is doing cosmically as well as in your life, as he establishes his kingdom, that good news, that word, the Bible says when that is implanted in you by the Holy Spirit, it's not just, you know, theoretical knowledge. I was catechized when I was eight, and I, you know, I heard that. No, it's like that's the reality I'm actually living in. That's gotten a hold of you by the Holy Spirit. That word of the Father, that gospel, that good news is in you by the Spirit. One of the fruits of that, beloved, is that you are able, you have the power then Not to be flailing with all this power out of control with your words, but to be deliberate, to be careful, to be purposeful at all times about to whom am I speaking, what am I saying, why am I saying it? To whom am I speaking, what am I saying, 
Why am I saying it? The Spirit gives you, the Holy Spirit gives you the power in, as the gospel fills your heart, the power to rule your speech and to be purposeful in your speech. And that is why Paul can say, don't let corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but let what comes out of your mouth be good for building up as fits the occasion. And notice this astonishing statement that it may give grace to those who hear. Christians can speak in ways that give grace. That is the birthright of children of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, as always, the Holy Spirit works not just through sort of ecstatic experiences, but through habits. Because to learn how to speak in ways that give grace versus corrupting, the Bible says we've got to put off and put on and practice. And so I'm going to close today by offering, proposing for you as I propose to myself, three kinds of practice. Three kinds of practice for our speech. So we can be like these people of cool spirit with gentle tongues, gracious words, restraint, giving life with our words. Three kinds of practice, real quickly. First of all, Christians have to learn, when it comes to speech, bridling, bridling practices. Getting the bits and the reins on the horse. The very first act of dominion in Christ over your words is to say nothing. Proverbs 10:19 Where many words where there are many words sin isn't lacking whoever restrains his lips is prudent it is almost always the case that fewer words are better less is more many of us need to practice seasons of silence you know the children's quiet game my favorite part of trips let's play the quiet game i'm like yes let's do and it lasts about 40 seconds most of us need to play the quiet game that between now and let's say four o'clock this afternoon, unless I am directly asked a question, I am not going to speak. See if you can do it. See if you can do it. I'm going to train myself that when my wife speaks, I am not going to speak. I'm not going to be sullen. I'm going to be silent. When my child speaks, I'm going to not say something. I'm going to be silent. When my parent speaks, kids, you listening? When your parent speaks, don't say anything. That would change your household, I'm guessing, some of you. When my sibling speaks, my boss speaks, my friend, my coworker, that media pundit who just gets under my skin, I'm going to hear these things and I am not going to speak. Practice silence. That's a discipline of the Holy Spirit. Even more important, though, might be slow, slowness slow to speak. I'm still praying for God to help me get this automatic timer turned on that as soon as I hear something, I have an automatic timer that goes bonk and it starts going click, 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 click. And until that thing has clicked for a while, I'm just, I, I, I'm, just, I'm, I'm just not saying something, especially when I can feel that heat rising inside of me. You know what this is like, some of you. As someone who battles with a besetting sin of anger, the number one lesson from my family over the years has been, Dad, you speak too fast. You're on it too quick. Slow your speech down. Bridling practices. Secondly, bridging practices. Bridging practices. There are ways to build verbal bridges, even in the most animated, heated exchanges. I have found, strangely enough, I guess I've had to learn this because I get riled so quickly, but I have found that even in fiercely intense arguments and conversations with people, there actually is a way, even in that, to stay thoughtful 
and to show your hearer what is going on in your thought press process and show your hearer that you know it is actually a process. <laughs> and so there are, in other words, there are ways to, to keep thinking about kind of my thinking, even when I'm arguing, and let my hearer know that there is something going on in my brain and let them know that I know there is something going on in my brain. I'm kind of still thinking about it. There are, there are ways to say this. Here are some verbal bridges. I have a lot of strong feelings right now. So can we both take that into account as we talk? That's bridging. I'm letting this person know, even though I am full of feeling, that I know I have feelings, and there's a process that those feelings are, you know, by which they are unfolding, and now we both know that's a thing, and that helps kind of build a bridge in the, in the conversation. Another verbal bridge, I haven't fully thought this through, so I'm letting my hearer know there's a process, and I haven't finished that process. I'm not just dogmatically smacking this person with assertions. I, I'm, I'm still thinking about it. I haven't fully thought this through, so Another verbal bridge, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Of course, I know I'm not, but I could be. Verbal bridges. I think I might be losing control of my emotions right now. Maybe we should take a quick break. That's bridging. I want to hear you, but there's something right now that's making it kind of hard for me to hear you well. That's verbal bridging. I'm probably just being dense right now. That's verbal bridging. Generally, I statements versus you statements. You know, I am feeling, I have been thinking, I am struggling. Talk about me instead of talking about you. Those are bridges. Suggestive words as opposed to assertive words. The British are quite good at this, unlike most Americans. Suggestive. Have we considered? Possibly. Perhaps. You laugh. This changes the tone. I would have thought, I would have thought. What are, what are those kind of, you know, Richard Sennett in his wonderful book Together talks about using this subjunctive mood. Because what you're doing is you are, you know, have we considered, what you're doing is you're setting a tone that we are still somewhat experimenting here in this conversation. We are still exploring. It's not just two, you know, senseless battering rams smashing into each other. We are open to new directions in the conversation. We are attempting, at least, to be somewhat cooperative. Have you considered, is it possible, perhaps this? What about that? That sets a tone. It brings it more to side to side as opposed to just face to face. You know, keep screaming at each other, see how that goes. Bridging. And finally, building. Because building practices, you know, I just don't, what does it mean the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life? A gentle tongue is a tree of life. That is incredibly powerful language. What does it mean building up with your words as fits the occasion? Three, a handful of just real quick building practices for our words. Number one, here's a building practice with your words. Just be in touch. Be in touch. That's a building practice. It is so darn easy now. You have a phone. You never put it down. So be in touch. With no strings attached, just, hey, thinking about you, how are you? I can't tell you how that, what that means when, when you receive just a quick, like someone, it just shows recognition, I thought of you, I care about you. It shows desire for someone, gratitude that they're in your life. Be in touch. That builds. It builds a lot. A note, a quick phone call, whatever it might be. Here's another building practice. Just learn how to share. This takes time, but learn how to share verbally your experiences you know just talk about stuff you've experienced and and listen to each other and learn how to do that and maybe from there you can actually begin to share some of your questions i've got questions I mean, you want to spend an evening talking about questions i'll give you a whole evening i'll drive you crazy 
Share your blessings. Do you guys just get together and talk about stuff like this? Share your blessings, maybe even at some point as you get closer and you, your relationship can bear the weight of it? Share your burdens. That's, those, that's building speech. Here's another building practice. Preach to each other. I mean that. Preach to each other. I don't mean heartless Bible talk. Man, when I'm struggling, don't come, don't come yap the Bible at me. I know the Bible. Thank you. But I'll take a word in season. I'll take a brother or sister in Christ who can listen and can find a way lovingly, sensitively to remind me of God's presence and his power and his purposes and his promises. There is a word in season and all of these promises are yes and amen in Jesus because he really is crucified, resurrected, ascended and reigning at the Father's right hand. Man, do I need to hear that. And if you think the only person who, says, who can say those things is the pastor, the Bible says every single saint is entrusted with the gospel. And we minister it one to another. We remind each other, this is reality. Here's the kingdom, and we're in it. Learn to preach. Build each other up. I mean, not, again, not hitting each other in the head with a Bible, but a word in season. That is blessing. It is speaking truth and reality and gospel over people. It's blessing. That's a practice. And the last building practice, maybe this is the simplest. Force your stubborn tongue to say thanks, to give thanks. Oh, I'm grateful. Say it. Let me hear these words from you. I'm grateful for this. I really appreciate this. Say the words. Get it out of your head, out into the open. That's building speech. Man, being around people that are saying that kind of stuff, it builds you up. But I just want to end by saying this, because it's important to remember. That this could sound like it's kind of moralistic. It's just, you know, giving you a bunch of stuff to do. It's not. Words that give life, words of life, they flow from hearts in which the word of Christ is richly dwelling. They don't come by pull, this doesn't come by pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and saying, I'm never going to say this or I'm going to start saying that. No, when our hearts are being filled with the word of Christ, the, you know, if you find that corrupting words are flowing out of your heart, out of your mouth, I find this all the time. The remedy for that is not just you know, muscling through to better things. The remedy to that has got to begin by receiving again and again what James calls that implanted word, the gospel, the love of God in Christ for me, for my neighbor, for the world. Because the scripture says that it is that gospel that purifies the heart. And as that gospel purifies and softens your heart and makes it gracious, that, beloved, is what will purify your tongue, sanctify your language. Amen? God grant it. Father, we, as speakers in your image, we pray that you will cause this to be so in us by the power of the Spirit, out of your own love for us. In Jesus we pray. Amen.